and I really want everyone to know that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And um, I'm just here today to let everybody know that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. So all the glory to God for all the blessings, and I'm here to say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and He is my Prince of Peace. Amen. Um, if you would, please grab your Bible. Uh, there's one in front of you, uh, in the seat back in front of you, or if you want to raise your hand and have someone hand it to you, then you can do that too. So good to see all of you here tonight. It looks like kind of a big crowd. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, we are in week two of this series called Bold, and um, so we're just going to dig right in. Uh, at the end of the service, we will have a time of response, and so that's where um, you will be invited to respond at the altar or respond by surrendering your life to Christ or respond by taking your tithes and offerings to one of the uh, offering boxes around here um, or respond by filling out the prayer card that is on your notes and, and turning that in. And I've just got to let you know, it may have taken me three hours to get through all the prayers this week because of what God's just been doing in and among us last week. And there's some heavy stuff going on. And, and so just know that we take that very, very, very seriously. And so if you have something that you want our staff to be praying over, every one of us, we all pray over all of them now. That's just what we've decided to do. And so um, uh, it's not super efficient in an organization, but there's two things. Jimmy cracks corn and... I don't care. We're going to pray. All right, so our staff prays over every single one of those. So fill those things out, and, and we take them very, very seriously. And if you get like a random text from a staff member, it's because you put your phone number on the, on the prayer card, and somebody might feel led by the Holy Spirit to just text you to let you know that, that we're praying for you. So um, just do that. We take it very seriously. And the mustaches are looking great, fellas. Good job. Good job on that. I like that, all right? And if you're married, it's working out for you, isn't it? Okay, so... Uh, not so much. Hey, uh, let's pray, and then we'll, um, we'll do Bible study. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we love you because you first loved us. God, I thank you that we, you would gather us in this place tonight to glorify you. And God, may you be glorified in, in worship and in word. God, let us not get in the way. Let us not make much of us, but much of you. God, um, we give you glory for the people that you saved and that were highlighted tonight in those videos. What an amazing group of men and women and their stories to, to publicly profess Jesus Christ as Lord. And so God, we thank you that we can gather here in this place safe. We don't have to worry about somebody knocking on the door and coming to get us because we are studying your word. So God, we thank you for the men and women for uh, decades that have stood in the gap to protect those freedoms uh, that often we take for granted. God, let us not take that freedom, that grace that you have given us for granted tonight, God, but let us dig into your word. And Holy Spirit, would you move in this place? Would you do what only you can do with your word as it goes out, may it not return in vain. And we pray this in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, if you've got your Bibles, let's go to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, we're in uh, week 2 of this series called Bold. And tonight we're going to talk about bold words. And um, I, I thought about starting the, tonight's sermon with, um, uh, what's the boldest thing that you've ever done? And as I began to think through my bold things, I thought, well, most of them are illegal, so I don't think I should share them. <laughs> um, and I just began to think about some of the bold things that people do. Like, we live in a society right now where people pursue boldness. I mean, they do some crazy things, you know, like um, cliff jump and jump out of perfectly good airplanes and things like that. And what, what are those people called? Um, stupid, I think that's the word. 
But, but it's kind of weird that we live in such a safe society that there, there's actually a market uh, to kind of scare people and, and people pay money to do all kinds of bold things. And yet oftentimes, even the boldest people among us, even the boldest people that we know when it comes to faith, often aren't very bold in their faith, particularly when it comes to talking about your faith. And so tonight we're going to talk about about bold words, because here's, here's something that I've learned um, as a Christian and particularly as a pastor. Um, we speak boldly about the things that we believe deeply. Like we speak boldly about the things that we believe in deeply. If we really believe in something deeply, we have no problem speaking very boldly about it. Like, like I'm, I'm wearing the McKenzie Run shirt today because um, I think that the, that the McKenzie Wilson Foundation is an incredible organization. McKenzie Wilson was a 15-year-old girl that got saved at an 1122 service, and then four weeks later went to be with the Lord. And in her Bible, she wrote, I want to make my faith public. And so her mom and dad took the prayer of her, their 15-year-old daughter, and, and they have put some feet to that thing. And so I believe deeply in what that organization is doing, and so I have no problem speaking boldly about it. I believe deeply in my children and my wife, so I have no problem speaking deeply about them. Um, I believe in the mighty, mighty Georgia Bulldogs deeply, and so I have no problem speaking boldly about them. And so last Saturday, as I'm walking to the game, this... Um, this smug Florida Gator fan. Have you ever met one of those? Because I think it's um, all of them. I think it is. Yeah. So, and I know I'm, I'm, I know I'm losing most of you in the room, but, you know, again, Jimmy Cracks Corn. All right. So, and this guy walks up to me smugly before the game and, and looks at me, kind of nice, but he's like, so, feeling pretty confident? And you know what? Uh, I had no real, no real evidence to feel a lot of confidence going into the game last week, but I believe deeply in, in that godly coach, Coach Rick, and, and those mighty bulldogs, and so I just looked at him with boldness and said, yeah, I'm feeling confident, and gave him a little, arr, arr, you know, right in his face, <laughs> and I wish I could have found that one guy after the game, and so we, we have no problem speaking boldly about the things that we believe deeply and it's it's why i have some pastor friends ask me all the time so it seems to me you know we've listened to your podcast you just have one message you just preach you just do the gospel every single time and to which i say back what else are you going to talk about i mean really what else are you going to talk about i'm not smart enough to give thousands of people advice on how to be a better version of you there's plenty of that out there and so what i believe most deeply in is just the gospel, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what I've found, now that I've been a Christian for a long time, most of my life, um, is that it never grows old. It never gets old. It, it, it's almost like a beautiful diamond that you hold it up, and you hold up that glorious gospel, and just as you, as you begin to twist it and look at it from different angles, that the light of the Holy Spirit shines through that, and it refracts in different ways, and it cuts you in different ways, and you see it in different ways, but it's still just that glorious gospel. And so what we're going to do tonight, again, once again, is we're just going to talk about the gospel. And the reason, and what you're going to see in the text here, is that every time one of the apostles has an opportunity to share the gospel, guess what they do? They speak boldly about what they believe in deeply. And so Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. It says, while he clung to Peter and John, 
If you were, if you were here last week, then you know who the he is. Um, he is that lame beggar that was healed in the first 10 verses of chapter 3. So if you weren't here last week, there was a, a, a guy that was begging for money. He'd been begging for 40 years. He'd been lame. He couldn't walk for 40 years. And he was asking for money. And the Apostle Peter said, I, well, I don't have any money, but what I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And he gets up and walks. And so that guy goes into the temple, follows Peter and John into the temple, and he's leaping and praising God. And so that's the he. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. It's kind of like a porch um, in, in the temple. Verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. So what happens, this is the second time, we're only in chapter 3, and two times now, Peter looks up and a big crowd shows up to see what God's been doing. And so, God, so Peter not only sees an opportunity, but he seizes an opportunity to share the gospel. And it's all rooted in the purpose of the church in Acts 1-8, where Jesus tells the disciples, and you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. And he lists four different places, but essentially it means wherever you go, you will, you will be my witnesses. And so once again, Peter, he sees this awesome opportunity. All of these people gathering around to see this miracle that God has performed. And so Peter steps up and not only does he see the opportunity, but he seizes the opportunity and he's going to do something about it. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And that this is the healing of this man. Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Now this is a big deal. First of all, you got to know that Peter's going to connect with his audience right where they are. They're inside the temple gates, so all of these people inside the temple gates are uh, Jewish men. And so, he gives the traditional uh, Jewish introduction of Yahweh, or God, uh, the God of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But then, if you'll see what he does, then he's going to add on Jesus to the traditional, uh, the traditional Jewish introduction of God. This was a big deal. And so he says, the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So everybody in the audience is like, yeah, that, that's our God. That's the God of our forefathers. That's who we worship. And he says, he glorified his servant. And in the ESV, the English Standard Version, that, that word gets translated servant. It's a total play on words. It's a word that means servant or it also means child. It means both things. It means servant and child. So what, what Peter is saying here is that Jesus is the son of God, that, that he equates Jesus with God. And so he says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Verse 14, but you denied the holy and righteous one. That phrase, holy and righteous one, he's reaching back to the book of Isaiah and he's calling Jesus the holy and righteous one, that one that Isaiah the prophet was prophesying about that would be the coming son of God, the Messiah, the spotless lamb of God. That same one, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. 
So if you're new to Bible study, you may be thinking, what is he talking about? Well, if you go back to the book of Luke, we won't go there, I'll just tell you real quick. In Luke chapter 23, when, <clears throat> when Jesus has been arrested and he's on trial, they, they were having a hard time getting him convicted. And so he keeps bouncing around from all the different court system. Because you have a religious court system, you have a Jewish court system, and then you have a Roman court system. And so he's bouncing around between all of those court systems. And Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, he can't find anything guilty about Jesus. And so if you'll read in Luke 23, he brings Jesus up in front of the crowd. And he's essentially saying, uh, what do you want me to do with this man? Because um, I've investigated the situation and I understand your claims that you're making that that we should try him for treason for trying to uh, stir up the crowd against Rome and against the Caesar. But I find no sin, or he didn't use the word sin, I find no guilt in this man. He has broken no laws. And so I think, how about this? I'll just beat him and then I'll let him go. To which the crowd begins to go, you know, no, crucify him, kill him. They begin to chant, crucify him, kill him. And so Pontius Pilate really doesn't want to because he knows that Jesus is this innocent man. And so uh, Rome had this custom with the Jewish people. And so essentially once a year, right around Passover, what they would do is they would let one prisoner free. Whether he deserved it or not, they would go go into the jails and they would pick one prisoner and they would just let that guy go. As sort of a peace offering to the Jewish people. And so Pontius Pilate comes back up and says, I tell you what, it's that time of year, so how about I just let Jesus go? And, and the people say no. And so he goes into the jail, he goes into the prison system, and essentially he finds the worst prisoner on death row. It's a guy named Barabbas. And he brings Barabbas up, and he goes, okay, this is Pontius Pilate to the people. Okay, you get the choice. You can get this innocent rabbi, of which I can find no guilt, or I will release to you Barabbas. Barabbas was a murderer, and Barabbas was stirring up insurrection against Rome. Uh, Barabbas may have killed some of the very people's relatives that were in the audience that day. That's how evil and bad this guy Barabbas is. And yet, the people say, no, 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 crucify Jesus and give us Barabbas. And so that's what he's talking about here when he says, you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Now listen, this whole, this whole thing that happened with Barabbas, that Jesus, the innocent one, goes to, to pay, um, pay the penalty by death that he did not owe, because he was innocent. And yet Barabbas who was totally guilty, gets to go free. It's a beautiful, perfect picture of substitutionary atonement. It's what Jesus has done for every one of us, that we are all the Barabbas, and Jesus goes to the cross, and we get to go free. And then he goes on to say, verse 15, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now, one thing about about Peter's preaching is... um, uh, he is not very seeker sensitive whatsoever, all right? Every time, he's got two crowds so far, and both times, as soon as the crowd shows up, and these aren't believers in Jesus, he goes at them with this, you killed Jesus, the author of life. To which, if you were in the crowd, you're thinking, no, I didn't kill anybody, all right? That, that was six weeks ago at Passover, and I wasn't even here, all right? I had to work, an, I had to work overtime Uh, at my job, and I couldn't get off to come to the temple, so I heard about it, but I wasn't even here, and and, and the people that that were even there, they're going, we didn't kill him, the Romans killed him, 
I didn't, I didn't have a hammer. I didn't have the nail. I didn't do it. But what Peter essentially is saying is, no, yes, you did. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. You know what he's saying? You know what Peter would say to us today, right here, right now? He would say to you and to me, you killed Jesus. And you go, no, 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 no. I didn't ever kill Jesus. I love Jesus. I, I read about, I read to my kids about Jesus. You know, who doesn't love Jesus? And, and Peter would say, no, you, you killed him. Essentially, what he's saying is this, is this, our sin, it's our sin that nailed Jesus to the tree. Whether you were there or not, it, it's irrelevant because what Jesus did is pay our sin debt on the cross. All the sin that was and all the sin that was going on that day and all the sin that would be was heaped upon the shoulders of Jesus at the cross. And so, and so it's our sin, it's our sin that caused the death of Jesus. It's, it's why I'll tell you all the time, you see... Um, you're not bad because you sin, okay? You're not a bad person because you sin. You sin because you're dead. You're a dead person. And it is just your very nature to sin. It, it, it's not because you learned it, and everybody with a three-year-old believes this. You didn't teach your kid to bite, all right? They didn't learn that from the dog. That is just, in, did you have to teach your two-year-old to be selfish, Right? Now, we live in a culture that says, like, oh, how dare you? You're going to hurt their self-esteem. All right? They're a snowflake. They're a rainbow. No, they're not. They're wretched, black-hearted sinners who we dearly love, dearly, dearly, dearly love. And because we love them, want to tell them the truth, that you're not a bad person that needs to get better. You're a dead person that needs to be reborn. Is that, that's what... It's kind of Pete, that's what Peter starts with, with this crowd. Is that you killed Jesus. No, I didn't. I didn't do anything. Yeah, you did. It's our sin. It's our very sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. But, but the good news, though, is that it didn't end there. Okay? It didn't end there. Um, but God raised him from the dead. And to this, we are witnesses. Like, we're not just talking about something that we believe in, and this is just sort of our religion or, or our philosophical view on life and eternity. But we actually, we, we walked with Jesus, and we talked with Jesus, and then we witnessed him being crucified. A lot of you were there, remember? And then three days later, he was resurrected again, and we saw him. We're not even talking about just everybody close your eyes and let's believe. We're talking about an actual event in human history that happened. And to this, we are witnesses. Verse 16. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect help in the presence of you all. If you'll notice something in the early church, they were obsessed with the name of Jesus. I mean, they were obsessed with the name of Jesus. They, they wanted everybody to know there's one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And, and they couldn't help talking about not just God and not just uh, the man upstairs or the Almighty, but, but the name Jesus. And, and if you'll notice, it's really true today, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of hip to believe in God. You can be spiritual, and you can believe in God, and you can, you can produce albums that are, are for everything that God is against, and then when you get awarded or rewarded for them, you can thank God for your album that is everything against what he is for, all right? 
And everybody's like, oh, wow, cool. You know, whatever artist, wow, he must be a Christian because he just thanked God. And everybody's pro-God. But you start talking about Jesus, and everybody gets uncomfortable. Do you know how many times I get invited to pray at stuff? All right. So as a pastor, especially like with what's going on around here, I get invited to pray at all kind of stuff. All right. You know, like formal events where rich people are eating breakfast or lunch. All right. Mostly those kind of things. Dinner, fundraisers, sort of thing. And and it's when I get the call, I'm like, I'm happy to. But we live in a society now where you kind of gotta you gotta point this out. You go, all right. But just to make, I just to let you know, I, I pray in the name of Jesus. Okay. And they're like, yeah, that's going to be a problem. I go, okay, well, then I'm not your guy. I'm not going to tell you how to run your event, all right? But, but that's, that's the name in which I pray. That's who I'm talking to. That's the name in which I pray. So if you don't want the preacher to talk about Jesus, then you just got to get someone else. But they're cool. You can pray in his name. You can pray in God's name. You can pray in, kind of pick your own God. But, but there's something about that name, Jesus. There's something about that name Jesus to the believer that's just kind of soothing and to the person far from God that just is a little, I don't know about that. Well, the same thing was true in the first century. In fact, the people he's talking to, and we're going to find out in the next few chapters, the religious people he's talking to, they're cool with talking about God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Yeah, keep talking about him, but could you just hush on the J word, all right? Could you just calm down a little bit there? And what you're going to find out is they go, no, we can't. One, we don't want you to get confused and think this guy was healed because of our piety, because we're so awesome. But it's in the name of Jesus. And not just the name, you know, capital J-E-S-U-S, not just the name, but in character with, in step with, in the person who Jesus is. It's by faith in his name that this man has been made strong. Verse 17. And now, brothers, now, now this is kind of crazy. Right after Peter just, just scolded them from, for killing the author of life, and I don't know if you've ever preached to a large crowd before, but when you tell them that they're wretched, black-hearted sinners, and you tell them that you killed Jesus, and you tell them that they killed the author of life, it, you know, it's not a lot of warm fuzzies going on here, okay? And so he starts, he leads with that, and then he's going to kind of turn the corner here, and, and this is kind of sensitive, Peter, here. And now, brothers, like, yeah, we boys, right? We're brothers. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. If you're bold enough to take notes in your Bible, underline the words, all the prophets. So what what Peter essentially is saying is, now, they didn't have the New Testament at that point because it was happening, right? But they were pretty stoked on the Old Testament, especially the religious people that were at the temple. They, they knew the Old Testament. And so what, what Peter is saying is, hey, listen, guys, you missed it. You missed it. So the reason you killed Jesus is because you didn't know any better, but I'm about to fill you in. I'm about to teach you what was the whole point of the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament, that the whole thing was about Jesus, That's what the entire Old Testament was about. And in fact, I would say to you that the whole Bible is about one thing, that the whole thing is about Jesus. And so when he says all the prophets, he's meaning that all of God's word is about Jesus. That it started all the way back in the book of Genesis when when God said, let us create man in our own image. Well, who is God talking to? Well, there was an us there. 
There was the Trinity. There's God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Eternally present from eternity past to eternity future. And God in and of himself is love because God is a relationship. So God wasn't lonely. God didn't need us. But God wanted to demonstrate his love. So he created everything. And then, I don't know if you've read through the Bible. Man, it went, it was going really, really great for like a page. I mean, literally. All right? First chapter is beautiful. Second chapter, that's going pretty well. But by the time you get through one page front and back, the thing's falling apart. And so, um, Adam and Eve sin. And sin enters the world. And now there's a separation from God. And and maybe you've heard that before, that sin separates us from God. And that is altogether true, but it's it's not fully descriptive of what sin is. It's not just like a life full of sin is not as good as a life with God. Well, it's not. But it's worse than just being separated from God, but sin always leads to death. And so Adam and Eve, in their selfishness, they decide to put themselves on the throne of their life instead of the Almighty God. And because they, because they don't trust God, they, they disobey the one commandment. If you think God's into rules, then you don't know God. Do you know when God kicked this whole thing off, you know how many rules there were? Just one. Just one. And some of the commandments was, were awesome. Were, listen to this, fellas. You know what one of the commandments was? Um, he, he made them naked and didn't even make clothes. And then here was a command of God. Be fruitful and multiply. Can I get an amen, fellas, all right? The command, glory, all right? I mean, that was it. That was it. And so, but when sin enters the world, there's, there's not just separation between God and man, but sin leads to death. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so God comes walking through the garden, and he's calling out by name Adam and Eve. And, and Adam and Eve do what we all do when we sin. They are filled with shame. And so they run and they hide and they hide from God. And the Bible says that they sow fig leaves to try to cover their shame. Sound familiar? They try to cover their shame. They try to do something under their own power to cover up what is keeping them from God. And they try to cover their shame. And God walks through the garden and finds Adam and Eve and says, what have you done? And just like any good man, he says, this woman that you gave me did this, all right? And so he advocates authority, and it just goes bad. And, and so Eve blames the serpent. And when God comes to the serpent to curse the serpent, in Genesis chapter 3, says this, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, the, the, the offspring of Eve, and he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first messianic prophecy in Scripture. And they haven't even made it out of the garden yet. So God says there's enmity between, between you and Eve. And there's separation between me and my prized creation, my children. And now, because of the sin, they are lost. And here's how this is going to go down. She is going to have a child. In her bloodline is going to be a child. And you are going to try to strike his heel. And you are going to think that you have won. But he will crush your head. And so Peter's saying, if you'll remember all the way back to the book of Moses, this thing, this thing was not just about a, a little children's tale about, about how we all got here, but it was about the proclamation that the Messiah was coming. And so if you fast forward to Noah, 
Um, Noah is about, it, it, it's not a children's story about God looked about and everybody was bad, but Noah was good, so he built a boat and they kind of floated around for a while. No, no, no. It is, here is a people who are under the wrath of God and deserve the wrath of God, and yet God provides a vessel of salvation. And it was just to point people to the coming Messiah. And then Abraham comes along, and Abraham Abraham is, is, the, is the father of this whole movement, and God comes to him and says, I'm going to bless you that you may be a blessing. And from you will be a blessing to the entire world because you're going to have this only begotten son. Does that language sound familiar if you grew up in church? And then in Abraham's life, after he gets this promised son or this only begotten son, God comes to him and says, I want you to take your only begotten son, I want you to take him up to the hill, and I want you to sacrifice him. And so Abraham, by faith, takes his only begotten son, the one that he loves, and he takes him up to the hill. I mean, you, you think you got parent issues, okay? Imagine going through this as a 14-year-old. And so he takes his, Isaac, his only begotten son, up to the hill, and then an angel shows up and says, no, don't do that, don't do that. That there is a substitute sacrifice that I want you to sacrifice on the altar. And it was, it was a foreshadowing, it was a picture of this substitutionary atoning sacrifice that was to come. And so then, um, eventually, eventually he has a bunch of kids, and the kids end up in Egypt, and, and you know, it's a lot of Bible verses to get to there. But then, eventually, the, the God's chosen people, now they are a slave nation in Egypt. And so... On the scene comes this incredible leader named Moses. And Moses gets told by God through this burning bush, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And so, so Moses goes in and Pharaoh kind of, you know, he's kind of wishy-washy. And so God begins to send these plagues and send these plagues and send these plagues. And there's ten plagues to convince the Pharaoh to let God's people go. And the tenth one is called, it's called the, the plague of the firstborn son. And so God sends a messenger to the Jewish people and he says, listen, dads, here's what I need you to do. You need to go and you need to get a perfect spotless lamb and you need to sacrifice the lamb and you take that lamb's blood and you put it on the door frames of your house because tomorrow night the angel of death is going to fly over this city and any house, any house that has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of that house, I will spare your firstborn son. But if there is no blood of the lamb on the doorpost of that house, then your firstborn son will die. And so, you know, all the dads go to their sons and say, hey, son, we got to go find the perfect spotless lamb because we've got to sacrifice it. And the son was probably like, well, that's not fair. It's not fair at all. What did that lamb do? And he goes, well, here's how this works. It's the lamb or it's you. And that's when they go, here, lamb, lamb, lamb. You know, come on, let's go get to us a lamb. And so, sure enough, the angel of death comes through and passes over every household where the spotless lamb's blood is spread on the doorposts of the house. And what Peter is saying to this group is, um, this wasn't just about lambs and doorposts and children of Egypt, or children of Israel coming out of Egypt. This was a foreshadowing of the lamb that was to come. And so, sure enough, Pharaoh lets those people go, and they leave, and they cross the Jordan and they, and they wander in the, or they cross the Red Sea, and then they wander in the wilderness for years and years and years. And while they're there, God tells Moses to institute the law. And so Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, and he has this unbelievable experience with God, where the Bible says that God literally writes the law in these tablets. And he brings them down to the people, and he kind of has to go back and forth a couple of times, but eventually they, they figure it all out. And he institutes this, um, 
this the Levitical system, this system based on the law. And God gave the law as a protection for the people, as a, as a guideline for the people. And as like a, what Romans would say is a babysitter for the people. So that, so that people would look at the Ten Commandments plus the other, the other 600 plus commandments and go, wait a minute, there's a problem. Because I've read the Ten Commandments and no matter how hard I try to obey the Ten Commandments, I just can't seem to pull it off. You know, the first one is there is one God and you should have no other gods before me. And you go, uh-oh. Well, what's the second one? No idols. Uh-oh. What about the third one? Don't use God's name in vain. Uh-oh. You ever done that? Do we need to go through the whole list? The fourth one, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. I know y'all don't do that. Y'all come on Thursday night so you can do you know, tailgating on Sunday so you know you don't do it. All right? Uh, the fifth one, obey your parents. All right? If you're over nine years old, you failed on that one. Do not murder. And you go, oh, finally, finally, there's one that I didn't do. And then Jesus comes along and goes, well, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, if you've ever hated someone in your heart, you think, well, if you've ever driven on JTB, there you go, you're a sinner there. We could keep going. The seventh one is don't commit adultery. And you go, oh, another one, I made it. And then Jesus says, uh, you've heard it said that, that thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, and you go, well, there goes that one, okay? There goes that one. And you can keep going. Don't lie. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. And, and you may be thinking, well, what does that mean? How about this? If you've ever watched HGTV, all right, there you go. You failed that one. Well, then what, are, what is that for then? Well, the, the law was actually there so that we would know, Houston, there's a problem. And the problem is not I don't try hard enough because I've given it everything I'm made of and I still can't obey the law. In fact, think about how many promises you've broken just to yourself. Remember that time your friend was holding your hair back and you said, God, if you get me out of this one, I'll never do this again? Yeah. If you've ever prayed that twice. (laughs) Yeah, so that's what the law was there to let you know, uh uh-oh. I am not a, a mistaker in need of a life coach. I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And so God, God institutes the, this sacrificial system. So once a year, in order to appease God because we are sinners and we cannot keep the law. So once every year there was this day called the Day of Atonement. And at the Day of Atonement, what would happen is the priest, the high holy priest, he would, he would do a couple of things. One is he would get these two goats, all right? And you didn't want to be either goat. And he would take these two goats and the nation of Israel would gather together and they would confess out loud to the priest their sins. And then the priest would hear their sins and take the sins of the people and place them on the head of this goat. And it was called the scapegoat. That's what it was called. And he would place the sins. He would transfer the sins from the people to the goat. And then he would take the goat to the edge of town and send it out into the wilderness and cast the goat as far as as the east is from the west. And it would just travel out there in loneliness and die. And it it was a visual representation of the people of Israel casting their sins on something else that would take their sins away. And then with the other goat. So you know at first the other goat was like. Whew good for me. Not so good for the other one. Alright. They would take that goat. And sacrifice it. And slaughter it. And then that priest would take it into the temple. But not into the outer court. And not into the inner court. But in this little room called the Holy of Holies. And in this room called the Holy of Holies. There was this curtain that separated 
the presence of God from the people of God. And in that little room called the Holy of Holies, there was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And if you want to study about it, watch the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you can find out everything you need to know about the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was this box, and inside of it was the law of God, the Ten Commandments of God. And it represented the presence of God. And they built this thing with like a throne on it. And the idea was that God, um, that God sat on that throne. And in the Holy of Holies was the presence of God. But you weren't allowed into the presence of God. Of, so this big curtain was put there. And so one time a year, after the people of God um, confessed their sins to the priest... The high holy priest, he would go in behind the curtain and into the holy of holies with this sacrificed goat or lamb. And it would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat or on the the altar, on the Ark of the Covenant. And the blood of that sacrifice would cover over the broken laws of God's people. And it was such a big deal. It was such a big deal that if you did it wrong or if you were irreverent, then God would strike you down in his presence because God is a holy and a just and a perfect God. And so they, it, it was so serious that when the high holy priest went in there, the great high priest, he would, he would go in with, um, with a rope tied around him and a bell on his belt. And there was one guy, like the JV priest, he'd have his ear up to the curtain, and if the bell quit ringing, you better pull the rope on up, and congratulations, tell your mom, you just got a promotion. Now you get to go in and continue on with the service. Okay? And so once a year, it was called the Day of Atonement or the Day of Payment. And so that's what, that's what God instituted through Moses in the Old Testament. And then, I mean, I could go all the way through all of the prophets, all of the prophets, the ones that you've heard of, like Jeremiah and Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied about Jesus, things like this. This one will be real popular in about a month or two months. And the virgin will be with child. And he will be called Emmanuel and God with us. But that, that's not the only thing that was prophesied about the coming Son of God. Also in Isaiah 53, listen to this prophecy. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see what the prophet Isaiah was talking about? One day the Son of God's going to come. And our sin is going to be placed on his shoulders. And it wasn't just prophets like Isaiah. All the way to the very last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi said things like, when the Son of Righteousness comes, he will come with healing in his wings. And so that's why when Jesus shows up and he's walking around town and he's healing people, people began to think... This must be the one. If you've done Bible study before and you know of the woman with the issue of blood and she fights and claws her way to get to the edge of his robe, you Sunday school people remember this, and he touches the, she touches the edge of the garment and there's healing that happens, it's because she believed that, that he was the son of righteousness and there was healing in his wings or in the edge of his garment. And then, and then um, this guy named John the Baptist, this super eccentric guy, Okay, if you think you're weird, you need to check out John the Baptist. This crazy guy kind of didn't brush his hair or wash well, wore weird like camel clothes, right? sort of a hippie before it was cool to be a hippie. And he lived out by the Jordan River, and he had this one message, repent and be baptized. 
He said he was there to prepare ye the way of the Lord. Repent and be baptized. And all of these people were showing up to listen to this crazy preacher preach. You know, if you yell enough and you're eccentric enough, a lot of people will show up and listen to what you have to say. And so that's what John the Baptist did. He just yelled at them and yelled at them, and they just showed up and got baptized. It was crazy. And then one day out of nowhere, John the Baptist looks by the river Jordan, and he says these words, Behold! The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Not another goat of God that's going to cover it for another year. But he says, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And everybody looks around like, who is it? And I think they're expecting maybe a bright light to shine down or somebody to just kind of float in. And it's Jesus, the carpenter's son. And you know, there had to be some people be like, dude, that's just your first cousin. That can't be the Lamb of God. And sure enough, here comes Jesus a carpenter's boy, and he gets baptized or washed in the Jordan, and he comes up out of the water. The Bible says that the heavens open, and a voice is heard by the people. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then for the next three years, Jesus does this public ministry. And what Jesus does over the next three years is fulfill all of the prophecies that were written about him. That's why if you read through the Gospels over and over and over, it will just say, and Jesus did this to fulfill the Scriptures. And he does this over and over and over. And then he goes to the cross. And he's crucified. And he's up on the cross. And you've got to understand this. The most religious people, even the people that love Jesus, didn't even fully get this. I mean, his disciples, like Peter, who said things like, even if the whole world were turned their back on you, I would never leave you. And then when people tried to come and arrest him, then he fought for Jesus and chopped off his guy's ear. Because he didn't even fully understand that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God that had to be crucified for the sins of this world. And Jesus is nailed to the cross. And physically speaking, a Roman nailed him with a hammer and a nail. But spiritually speaking, it was our sins that nailed him to the cross. And then the Bible says things like, God made him who was without sin to be sin for us so that we could become his righteousness. That, like Isaiah said, that our transgressions were heaped upon his shoulders. And Jesus endures the full wrath of God on the cross. And then the first thing he says when he hangs on that cross is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he says seven things while he's on the cross. All right? He says, I thirst. He looks down and makes sure, make sure his mom's taken care of. He has this conversation with the thieves beside him. And then one of the most troubling things that Jesus says on the cross is this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the sky turns black. And, and I've heard people all the time say that it was in that moment where God the Father was turning his back on God the Son. And I always was like, what? Well, I sure hope not. You know, and, and I always heard, well, it's because God can't look on sin. And I thought, well, how in the heck does he look at me? Because I got a lot of it going on. Well, actually what Jesus is doing is he's, he's quoting Matthew, I mean, he's quoting Psalm chapter 22. He, he's quoting Psalm 22. Jesus, Son of God, Messiah, Savior, is also a rabbi. And there was this rabbinical tradition called a remez where you would quote part of a verse and then everybody that knew their Bible well, they would remember the rest of the verse. And on the cross, in order for him to speak, he had to push up on his nail-pierced feet, take in a breath and say something. So he's not going to be able to quote the entire Psalm 22. 
So essentially what he does is he gets everybody in the audience going by quoting the beginning, knowing that all the good Jewish boys and girls are just going to do the rest of it. I mean, we could do it here too, right? Happy birthday. It just, it just happens, doesn't it? The things that you have memorized, the words just keep coming. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But listen to some of the rest of the words from Psalm 22. By the way, written by King David hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me and make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. And at the cross, people said, if you really are God, save us and save yourself with us. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. If you're familiar with the crucifixion, a Roman soldier stabbed Jesus under the rib, and the Bible says that his heart, his said blood flowed like water, that he was stabbed in the heart, and it melted like wax. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, and a company of evildoers encircle me, and they have pierced my hands and feet. And I count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. And at the foot of the cross is Jesus, the Son of God, the one prophesied about in Psalm 22. The Roman soldiers cast lot for his clothes. In verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember. (laughs) All the ends of the earth shall remember. Guess who that's talking about? You think as compared to Golgotha on the day of the crucifixion, on the other side of the world, Now, 2,000 years later, we would be the ends of the earth. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. Verse 30. Posterity shall serve him. That's us. That means generations to come. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. And they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. That's how Psalm 22 ends. That he has done it. And guess what Jesus says last on the cross. It is finished. Which would be the same thing as he has done it. He has done what? He has finished what? That's the question. Well, what has he finished on the cross? Well, what he finished is that the enemy did try to bruise his heel, but he's crushed his head. That he is the fulfillment of, uh, of, of that ark of salvation. That he is the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. That he is that perfect spotless lamb that was slain. And if you take the blood of the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world and put it on the doorpost of your heart, then the angel of death passes over you. That he is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and all of the Old Testament that he has finished that. And on the day that he was crucified, as he breathed his last breath, this unbelievable thing happens, that an earthquake strikes Jerusalem. And at the temple, at the Holy of Holies, that curtain that separated God's people from God's presence, it was torn from the very top to the very bottom. Why? Because it is finished. 
There is no more separation between, between people and God. Anyone that would put their faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, the substitutionary atonement for our sin, that we have full access to the very presence of God. It is finished. It's why Jesus said, look, I didn't, just, I didn't come to demolish the law, but to fulfill it. And it's what Peter is talking about here when he says to this group of people, look, the entire Bible is about one thing. It's about Jesus Christ, the almighty son of God, who came to die for the sins of all mankind. And he's saying to those religious people, you've been studying this book for your entire life. You've been doing religious things for your entire life, and you missed the entire point. That this whole thing is not about you. It's about Jesus which I would say to you too, when you read this book, it's not about you. When you read David and Goliath, you're not David, all right? Because here's the problem. Here's what we like to do, especially in evangelical church. We like to read this and be like, all right, here's David and Goliath, and you should face your giants, okay? Well, the problem is this. So, so what happens when you sling that stone and you miss the giant and he's still standing there? Uh-oh, because let's just be honest. To try to be like David is exhausting, isn't it? And isn't it just make you feel like a loser? Like a failure? You know why you feel that way? Because you are? Really? Sling the rock. Sling it again. Getting low on rocks. Sling it again. Maybe I don't have enough faith. No. You're not David. David is the champion that went out and conquered something that nobody else could conquer. Jesus is the greater David. If you're anybody in that story, you're standing right there next to me. You're the scared Israelite that was scared to go out and face the giant. And praise God, Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is the champion that overcomes sin and death. So that you don't try harder, you rest in that. And so that's what Peter is saying to these folks. The entire Bible, it's about Jesus. Verse 19, repent therefore. Like, since all that's true, since it's been paid for, since it's finished, since Jesus is the substitutionary atonement for our sin, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That word blotted out means obliterated to never exist again. Listen, if you're a Christian and you get that part, it'll revolutionize your walk with Jesus. That your sins have been obliterated. You cannot earn what's already been paid for. So relax rest in that that your sins will be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord I've read that verse every day this week that times of refreshing Jesus didn't just come to save you for your sin, from your sin but also that you would live a new life and that you would have rest for your soul and that he may send Christ appointed for you Jesus verse 21 from whom heaven must receive Until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Listen, folks, the gospel is not that Jesus is better than what you're doing now. It's true he is, but that's not the whole truth. It's either life or death. Not just Christianity is a better option for a better you. But it's either life or death. It's either refreshing with with the Lord or it's destruction. That's the choice. It's like a Christmas tree. You know what? 
It's like a Christmas tree. In a couple of weeks or months, or, you know, Gretchen wants us to get one tomorrow, but we're going to wait. We're all going to put Christmas trees in our house, and it looks great, and there is no life in it. And you can decorate the outside, and you can put stuff on it, but eventually all of our Christmas trees are going to the dump because they're dead. The problem is not putting more ornaments on it. The problem with the Christmas tree is there's no life in it, and that is our condition apart from Christ. And what the gospel is, is not to adorn the outside, but to graft that dead tree into the vine that brings life. That is the gospel. And so he says, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days that you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. You see, the Israelites, they loved being the chosen people. And, and what, what Peter is saying is, listen, you know what it means to be the chosen people? It just meant that you got access to the gospel first. So in essence, guess what, church? You're the chosen people that tonight... That tonight, God would love you enough that you would get access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it's not just about you being better. But it's about you surrendering your life to the lordship of Christ. About receiving that free gift of salvation that cost him everything on the cross. So you know what's bold about the words of Peter? Is that the boldest words that are ever spoken, the boldest words ever proclaimed, is the gospel. And I hope that you hear me in this, especially if you're not a Christian. Listen to me real quick, okay? I don't share this with you because I think I'm better than you. Oh, my goodness. Not at all. I I don't think I'm smarter than you. I don't think I've got this thing figured out, and you don't. But I actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I actually believe with everything I'm made of. I deeply believe that what I just described to you about the reality of our condition is true. And so what kind of person would I be to actually believe that everybody spends forever somewhere and not beg with you and plead with you to spend forever in a relationship with God in heaven, to surrender your life to the Lord, to be cleansed of your sin, to find refreshing in His presence, and then be in His presence forever and ever. Amen. The boldest words ever proclaimed are the gospel. And the boldest action, the boldest action would be to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ. To decide, God, I think you're drawing me to you. And I don't have it all figured out yet, but I surrender. I'm going to stop being Lord of my own life because I've done that and I know where that leads. And I'm sick of that road. I've been down that road before. And I'm ready to give up and to surrender my life to you. And call you Lord. To call you King. To call you Savior. So the gospel is simply this. That you and I are sinners. That sin leads to death. But by God's grace and His mercy and His love. That Jesus paid for that sin. So that we could receive life. And righteousness. And forgiveness. And abundance in Him. And tonight that is offered would you please bow your head? If you were here right now, and you would say, that's me. 
I'm ready to surrender my life to the Lordship of Christ. Whether you've been a churchgoer for a long, long time and you've just been playing the game and decorating the outside, or whether this is your very first time ever hearing the gospel, it doesn't matter. The arms of God are long and they reach out to you wherever you are. And if you are ready to surrender your life to Christ, would you raise your hand to receive Him as your Lord and Savior, ready to proclaim Him as your Lord and Savior. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I pray for those folks with their hands up. God, we know that it is not a hand in the air that saves you, God, but you save us. God, what you did on the cross by us surrendering our lives to the blood of the Lamb, Lord, that we are cleansed and forgiven and our sins are obliterated. So, God, I pray for the people tonight, right now, in this moment, that are surrendering to you, God. God, may they be filled with your spirit. May they be filled with the refreshing that comes from the manifest presence of you. God, I pray for the people in the room that have been Christians for a while and have not been bold in their faith. And we just need to be reminded of what we deeply believe in. God, I pray in this moment, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would receive refreshment in our soul from you. God, we thank you for the good news. God, we thank you and we praise you that the message is not that you're good and we're bad, so we need to try harder. But God, that the message is that we were dead and we have been brought to life in you. So God, may we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not to earn anything, not to earn your love, but because we are already loved. God, we thank you for your glorious gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And would you please stand with us? Um, uh, we're going to close by singing this, uh, kind of an incredible song, a revelation song. It's a description of heaven. It's a description of what life forever with, for those who have surrendered their life to Christ is like. And we want to invite you to respond. For those of you that surrendered your life to Christ, you can respond by making your way to the Connect Center. We'll have staff folks there um, that will help you get plugged in and figure out what your next step is. Some of you need to respond by taking prayer requests and dropping them off in the offering boxes. Some of you need to respond by surrendering to God your tithes and offerings. Uh, The altars, as always, are, are wide open. And then all of us together with one loud voice will respond by singing Revelation song.